Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In an economic and literal sense, the lights went out in Puerto Rico again this week. We discuss the power outage and the austerity plan. We find out about an experimental film set in the Sonora Desert. And on Weekend Passport, the extraction industry and shiny objects are the inspiration for an exhibit at the MCA. We talk with artists Odabong and Kanga. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. was an amazing thing the other day when we looked at the news and we saw that Puerto Rico had another entire blackout on the island, uh, one of the worst power outages since Hurricane Maria. We're going to talk about what's happening with Puerto Rico with Yaramar Bonilla. She is an associate professor of anthropology and Caribbean studies at Rutgers University, and she was doing field work on the economic, political, and social crisis in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit. And she's here in Chicago for a conference at the University of Illinois, Chicago, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. Great to have you here in person, Yaramar. Hi, great to be here. Uh, what did you think when you heard that there that the whole island got blacked out? Well, my first concern was actually about people's psyche, because I know the whole island has PTSD. And so, I mean, I worry about the economic impact. I worry about traffic jams. I worry about hospitals where surgeons were operating and the power went out. But I also worry about everyone who just had an immediate moment of dread, of not again, of flashbacks to the storm, flashbacks to the long lines, waiting for gas, waiting for water. And I also worried about migration because I know a lot of people in that moment, they were just fed up. They can't they can't take it anymore. And there had been a blackout the week before also. So it's this blackout after blackout back to back. And so people are hanging on by an emotional thread. And it's it's really taking a toll. Why did you think about the way the blackout happened? It was a contractor who came too close to something and it lit up the whole thing. Well, there's there's two things because the the blackout the week prior was also something related to a contractor and a tree that fell and and down the power, and so in both instances is these subcontractors of the Cobra Company. So we see how this kind of privatized recovery it, it has all kinds of problems with it. But then also these kind of minor things that just knock out the entire grid. It shows how fragile the grid is, and so we're. We're just two months to the next hurricane season. I mean, we're closer to the next hurricane season than the last one. And so I know that that's part of what's also taking an emotional toll. People are really scared about the next hurricane season that is already predicted to have several strong storms. I read a statistic. I couldn't believe that um, the U.S. had put uh, $2 billion into the grid to get it to where it is now. That seems like an enormous chunk of change that would uh, fix something. 
I know part of the problem is that they have to restore it to what it was. So they couldn't do underground cabling, for example. They, they had to just kind of That's a legal it. thing. That... The Stafford Act, yeah, doesn't allow for hurricane recovery money to be used for improvements. You, you have to just restore what was there. So, so that's that's part of the problem that all this money is being invested in just putting back on its feet a grid that was already very fragile. And that's now just going to be sold off, too. So there's that. What do you mean it's going to be sold off? Well, it, the, it's going to be privatized. It's already been announced. And a new head of, of the electricity company has been named and he's been charged with just selling it for parts. So we're building this back up, spending a ton of money on it to then sell it off to the highest bidder. So who would want to pay a really good price for this really dumpy system? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question. And I was at an investors conference in New York a couple of months ago, and that was asked to the governor, and the response that he had was that Puerto Ricans are already used to paying such a high price point for utilities that there's lots of room to innovate and to charge bring, more. Yeah, <laughs> because in other places, if you come in and you switch to renewables, it might raise people's rates and there might be pushback. But in Puerto Rico, people are already accustomed to paying a ton of money for a system that doesn't work because the utilities in Puerto Rico are much, much higher than they are in the United States because it's a really inefficient system. So so he thinks that there's lots of room for a big profit margin, assuming and any means promise that that the costs are going to go down somewhat for Puerto Rican consumers. But really, it's still going to be pretty high, much higher than the rest of the U.S. Is there any talk about renewables and making renewables a big factor here and uh, changing the the system? There is. There is. Of course, I'm always very scared and cautious. I mean, you have community organizations like Casa Pueblo, for example, who on Wednesday, they were kind of trolling people on Twitter, showing off about how all their solar-powered radio stations and, and their solar community center and all these solar refrigerators that they given people in the town of Adjuntas how everything was up and running while everyone else is tweeting about everything that's canceled and everything that's closed. So they kind of won Twitter that day. But so, but those aren't the folks who the governor is necessarily listening to, these kind of grassroots activists that have been pushing Puerto Rico towards self-sufficiency for years. Instead, they're listening to these tech, financial technology advocates, Bitcoin uh, advocates, and blockchain advocates who I think are trying to move towards a different kind of microgrid. You know, micro always sounds good and organic and green, but that's not necessarily the case. And I'm really worried that folks in the mountains, for example, that still seven months out, they still don't have power. So they weren't affected by the blackout because they didn't have any power to lose. But so I'm worried that these folks might become guinea pigs for some kind of microgrid system and never get fully plugged back into the grid. That's a real possibility. I'm talking with Yaramar Bernia, and she is with Rutgers University, was doing field work on the economic, political, and social crisis in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit. And she's in Chicago for a conference, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. You know, at the same time all this is happening, um, the control board that is deciding Puerto Rico's financial future came out with its latest five-year austerity plan. It's a draft, but it sounds, you know, what austerity plans do. It sounds pretty harsh. 
I know that in times of uh, disasters, a lot of times it's the time for implementation of things that they wanted to do all along. But in this case, you know, a big hurricane like that, it seems so mean. I, I don't understand how you can really tell, you know, people that their sick leave and vacation pay is going to be cut by half and uh, all the other proposals, 10 percent uh, pension cuts. They've got a long list of things they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. No, they're very serious. And there's been there's been this performative back and forth between the governor and the fiscal board. And the governor said that he wasn't going to implement their measures no matter what, and that he would go to jail. And then the legislature tried to pass this measure where the Treasury would take away funds from the fiscal board and to protest it. But that all seems very much performative. Uh, the 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 measure in the legislature didn't go anywhere. The governor acts like he doesn't want to implement any of these things, but his plan is not much different from that of the fiscal board. So there's this fight with, within these different centers of power that I think is just distracting. And so at the end of the day, the fiscal board has final say, and so they came out yesterday with their fiscal plan, and they said if the governor doesn't approve it, they're going to implement it anyway because they have have that power. For a lot of people, that was like a big colonial moment of, you know, these folks that nobody elected that were just imposed. They're just dictating policy now. And it's all privatization. It's all selling everything for parts, uh, closing schools, closing prisons and sending, you know, Puerto Rican prisoners to serve their sentences in private jails in the U.S., which will be you know, so disruptive for families and 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 such a violation of of human rights, even. That so, that, that sounds um, crazy. <laughs> that it we're, is crazy. That we're gonna uh, we're gonna be flying prisoners to privatize prisons in Florida, I assume, or something. Uh, you know. I mean, there's a lot of private prisons in upstate New York. It it could be really far away, but it's it's been little discussed what it means to really close jails and and you know move all these folks to the mainland. When you hear something like significant reductions in government subsidies to the island's 78 municipalities and the largest public university, what does that mean to you? Well, the the university had already been taking the hit really hard. I mean, that was what, what was put on the chopping block kind of first um, with, for reasons that are hard to understand because it's one of the few public entities that has no debt. Um, so already they're talking about closing campuses, consolidating campuses. Uh, the governor has said that the faculty needs to be proportionate to the enrollment. Um, so that I assume that means firing professors, uh, just as it's meant closing schools and firing teachers. And part of what's really creepy about this fiscal plan and the governor's fiscal plan is that it presumes a huge population loss. It does nothing to curb it, you know, so it, it's kind of dependent on Puerto Rico losing a big chunk, a quarter of its population, which is what's estimated to happen by 2019. And so I, I keep telling people that Puerto Rico feels almost like that HBO series, The Leftovers, where, you know, a quarter of the population is gone and the people who are left are thoroughly traumatized by that exodus. And the governor, he seems to just to not have any concern about that and to keep to be in fact counting on that, on that reduced population. That's a pretty wild picture you're painting there. Um, is there some kind of, uh, I don't know why people would stay. I guess, uh, it, you know, why wouldn't you leave if you were 
in this situation. I, I mean, I'm sure, sure, sure there are some people who want to live on their land and things like that. But if you were going to school, why would you go to the school where they're cutting all the stuff if you could go to the mainland, go to school somewhere else? Why would you want to go somewhere that's not your home, you know, just yep. because there are better jobs or something? I think that a lot of people, they want to stay close to their family. They want to enjoy their culture. They want to listen to their music, eat their food. The weather in Puerto Rico is lovely. I don't know if you've heard about this. <laughs> and the beaches we are like beautiful. We like snow in April. It's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially in April. I don't think many Puerto Ricans want to come to Chicago for the snowstorm. They'd much rather stay home and have their, their schools work. Working and and you know keep their teachers, and and have their livelihoods. But you you'd know? feel like a fool paying for this debt. It, you're like, oh, I my, my lifetime, I will be paying for this uh, this uh, craziness that I had no responsibility for. Yeah, and obviously a lot of people are leaving. But you know, leaving is is not a magic bullet. Like a lot of people come to the U.S., they feel discrimination, they feel exile, they feel they get depressed in the U.S. A lot of people who left after Maria. Some of them are trying to go back. You know, I live in New York and, and, you know, a lot of Puerto Ricans, we get together all the time and we're nostalgic and we just want to listen to salsa and, and, and you know, and we, we miss our friends, our family. So I, I think we want to we want to have a, a place that we can live in. We, we want Puerto Rico to be our homeland. We don't want it to just belong to developers and cryptocurrency devotees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were doing some field work on the statehood movement while you were there, and the people always talk about the independence movement and why isn't there an independence movement in Puerto Rico. Did any of this change the needle on that? Did, did, was there any change in uh, what Puerto Ricans would go for now? What I have found is that people have read the post-Maria moment through the lens that they already had. So the folks who are pro-independence, they're doubling down on that. They're getting solar panels. They're all about self-sufficiency and, and you know, breaking with U.S. dependence. The folks who really thought statehood what was, was what was best for Puerto Rico are doubling down on that, you know, and they, they read the inefficient recovery as symptomatic of the colonial situation, and they wonder whether if Puerto Rico was a state, things wouldn't have functioned differently. I mean, certainly the funds would have arrived sooner and perhaps there would have been a different kind of recovery. So that's what I see happening locally in Puerto Rico. I do think that in the United States, there's been a, a different kind of conversation about Puerto Rico, one that I'd never seen before. A lot of people are, are discovering uh, the relationship that Puerto Rico has to the U.S., thinking for the first time about that unequal citizenship and what it means. And so I think then, if anything, it, it's a different time within the United States, within the 50 states, for talking about Puerto Rico's relationship. Ultimately, though, that w won't change the equation. I mean, it takes well everything about Puerto Rico is Congress. It, Congress is the thing that uh, calls the shots, and uh, the re there's no representative from Puerto Rico in the Congress. Yeah, there's a non-voting representative just gets to hang out <laughs> and talk to people, but doesn't get to vote. But although she does get to, she can introduce legislation. But it's really kind of up to people to talk to their representatives here. Yeah, and and yeah. I mean, everyone recognizes in this area, Luis Gutierrez is, is somebody who is, uh, who talks about this issue, is, uh, you know, wants to see change happen. 
Um, yeah, and, and people in Puerto Rico are so disappointed that he's retiring. We feel like we're losing our, our one, you know, active member, some people. Um, but what what the governor is counting on is that this big, I mean, part and part of why the big migratory wave is convenient for him is that he is counting on Puerto Ricans moving to the U.S. to become a voting block, something similar to how Cubans in the U.S. are a voting block that cuts across you know, Democratic, Republican divide, and that they can put pressure on local politicians in their districts and states to, you know, vote one way or another towards Puerto Rico. So that's that's one initiative that he has. But I think, you know, in, in Puerto Rico, what people want to see is, is something new, a different formula. Uh, you know, a lot of people want statehood, but a lot of people don't want it. And a lot of people don't want independence either. They want to, to rethink sovereignty and and citizenship in a way that makes sense for this colony in the new millennium, you know? So you can't have the same decolonization formulas of the 1940s. You need to rethink decolonization for the global era, for the new millennium. What what would it look like? And I don't have the answer to that. And I think a lot of people in Puerto Rico don't have the answer to that, but they're searching for it. And there's a real desire for that, for a new kind of political formula. Um, you're coming to this conference at UIC, uh, Puerto Rico, Hurricane Maria, and the Crisis of Colonialism. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about waiting. I'm going to talk about who is made to wait, who is expected to be resilient, what are the colonial and racial logics of, of delay and of, of making people wait. For a lot of us, what what struck us was this long delay, and I would give this paper where I would say, it's been a month since Maria, it's been two months since Maria, it's been three months, and now it's been seven months, and there's still no sense of normality. So who who's made to wait and, and, and feel stuck in that way? And it's also the weight of decolonization. How long has Puerto Rico been waiting to, to rethink its relationship to the United States? How long did the really splashy beach resorts have to wait? Oh no, they were up and running right away. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> they were they they were housing FEMA workers. <laughs> yeah. You know, and if you if you if they were more equal citizens, people wouldn't be waiting for now. I think so. I think so. I think the expectation that folks should just make do, especially folks in the mountains, I mean, and also folks in, in Vieques, the small island off the coast of Puerto Rico, there's talk that they won't get electricity for two years. Yeah, that's a long time to wait. Yeah, so everyone is just I expected. guess when you're in X firing range, it, you know, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter. They have some municipal generators, and a lot of people who, who have the means are getting solar panels or are getting, you know, generators that can, you know, help them get off the grid. But there's a lot of people who can't afford that, who are just making do with candles and solar, you know, little solar lights and and that, I mean, again, the psychological toll of that is is really something to think about as well. I mean, I mean we all know the rates of suicide have jumped um, and the rates of depression are really incalculable. That's part of the thing I've been doing with my students. We've been doing a lot of interviews, um, talking to people about their experiences after the storm. And 90% of people break down crying in the interviews because they have all these unprocessed feelings. So if there were some trauma workers listening, they, they, they would find lots of work in Puerto Rico. Yes, yes, they can call me. I'd love to hear from them because I'm not necessarily equipped to deal with this, but I, I am definitely sensing it and trying to think carefully about it. 
Well, uh, Yarama Bonilla, it's been great talking with you, and I I hope for the best for Puerto Rico, and I hope that uh, something turns around. Thank you. Yarama Bonilla is a anthropology professor at Rutgers University. She was doing field work on the economic, political, and social crisis in Puerto Rico when Hurricane Maria hit, and she will be at the University of Illinois Chicago Conference Puerto Rico Hurricane Maria and the Crisis of Colonialism. Great to have you here in person. Thanks. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with our film contributor, Milo Stalik, and discuss an experimental film set in the Sonora Desert. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our film contributor, Milos Stalik from Facets. Nice to see you, Milos. Great to be here, Jerome. We've got a couple films to talk about today, and one of them I know you first saw at Cannes. It's called You Were Never Really Here, and it was it's by uh, director Lynn Ramsey and stars Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah, it's the fourth feature of Lynn Ramsey. You know, as a Scottish filmmaker, she's not very prolific. It's the only her fourth feature in 15 years. Her other films include Marvin Collar, Ratcatcher, a film called We Never Really uh, Talk About We Never Talk About Kevin with Tilda Swinton, which is, and all of the films have together one thing: they are very intense, and there is very little that compares to the great intensity that You Were Never Really Here delivers. It's the story. Joaquin Phoenix plays a hitman, uh, kind of a troubled mercenary who served, of course, time in the military, worked for the... Boy, really going against cast there. Going against cast. (laughs) But now he is, now he rescues kidnapped young women and the situation becomes that he comes across the case of this uh, young, young girl or young woman named Nina who is, of course, Russian, and who is the daughter of a state senator. And so that's the situation in which we walk into at the beginning of uh, You Were Never Really Here. It sounds like there is an incredibly large body count in this film. I was walking through it and trying to figure out how many people were getting whacked in this thing. And it, it's a lot. It's a lot. There's a lot of blood. <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's a lot of whacking. But beyond the, the violence, which is justified, because after all, that's his profession. I mean, he's not there, you know, to deliver cookies. Uh, it's also a psychological portrait. It's really a portrait of this mercenary guy who actually has a heart of gold. He's trying to uh, rescue this girl. He's very devoted to his mom, who suffers from dementia, so he has to go and see her. But he's also his world is also kind of falling apart. So there's that incredible psychological tension that he has to deliver. And very funny story is Joaquin Phoenix said that uh, in order to get him acclimated to the role that he was portraying, uh, Lynn Ramsey gave Joaquin Phoenix a soundtrack or something he had to listen to, which were gunshots, just recordings of gunshots to get used to the situation that he was going to be in. 
All right. Well, I think Joaquin Phoenix seems like he was well cast in this because if ever you wanted a, a guy who was breaking down and, you know, violent and crazy, he seems like the right guy. The amazing thing about this film is not just how intense it is visually, but what she does with sound. And in some ways, this connects us to the second film, which we're going to talk about today, because both use sound in, in an interesting way. And what I mean by interesting, she, it's something that she calls asymmetrical sound, that's, that's everything is slightly just off kilter and out of it. It's very layered. It's really specific to the environment that we're watching. So for example, when he's, uh, when Joaquin Phoenix is with his mom in her mom's house, it's very quiet. It's very secluded. It's very protected. But then of course there's New York. And so there's electronic sound and sound of the street. And so we really get, it's it become the, she's really trying to make this film be a sensory experience. And this was well-received at Cannes when you saw it. Everyone seems to like it. It's getting good reviews. Well, it really blows you over, you know? I mean, you watch it, you've been, you've been whacked in the head. So, <laughs> so. All right. The film is You Were Never Really Here. It's opening widely today in the Chicago area, and it sounds like uh, something that's uh, good to see. Now, the second film that we're going to talk about, Elmar uh, Delmar, and this is uh, an experimental film, and it's... Uh, uh, an interesting premise. Uh, explain it. Well, it's a film set on the border of the, on the on the U.S. Mexican border, and it's a film very much which really tries to get us very much into the subjective sensory experience of what it what what migration or crossing the border really means. And uh, we have the filmmaker on the line with us. J.P. Snydecki is uh, at Northwestern University. He teaches there, and uh, this is one of his projects. Uh, nice to meet you. Nice to talk with you again. We uh, actually talked previously about your film, um, Iron Ministry. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you both. Um, yeah, this is just to, to um, make clear that this is a film also collaboration with Joshua Bonetta, a Canadian artist um, and filmmaker, sound artist um, who's at Ithaca College. And the title is Elmar Lamar. Lamar, I said Delmar. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's my fault. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the Mar, I mean, of course, there's no C in it, right? But I mean, in a way, it is a C because it's the desert. And so is, is there a parallel? I mean, what, why, why did you, where did the t title come from? Yeah, so you know, the desert used to be a sea, um, and like gosh, you know, he's a Canadian, and myself, I'm a Yankee. When we arrive, you know, from the north, when we arrive in the terrain, we're just totally at sea. We're lost, you know, amongst all the visual and sonic noise. You can't, you sort of tell, you know, north from the south. You get easily disoriented, just like people who come there from the first time, perhaps from Ecuador or from uh, Guatemala or from Honduras or from Mexico. So we were trying to draw attention to the sense of sort of being lost at sea um, in that initial encounter with the desert. But we also were thinking about another situation where a natural feature is sort of been given the responsibility for meting out lethal punishments to economic refugees. So while we were making and shooting this film down in the Sonoran area, you know, we were also hearing lots of news of the Mediterranean Sea and, and that set of circumstances where people are perishing uh, in, in, that, um, in the sea there, just like people are sort of being forced and funneled to the most dangerous part of the you know, U.S.-Mexican border to cross as a policy of prevention through deterrence that our Department of Homeland Security sort of euphemistically terms uh, this sort of uh, 
dangerous, you're forcing people to go into this dangerous, uh, rugged terrain where they can fall or be dehydrated or get lost. You know, we've got a, a clip from the film, and the film doesn't have a really a, you. you it's not like a narrated film or anything, but this there is there are people who talk in it, and we've got a, a woman. You don't talking. see them. You don't see them. Um, yeah. And and uh, here's a here's a circumstance where a woman talks about uh, some, you know um, people she found. We were hiking up this pretty big hill um, when I kind of ran into Hayden, and he says, um, "There's someone here." Actually, I, I was trying to remember whether he said someone or something because cause I have at first looked and I thought it was like a backpack. She was on her, on her stomach, kind of like she had collapsed mid-crawl. One of her hands was still holding the, um, a half-full water bottle or electrolyte bottle. At that point, it was, it was just entirely silent. For, for me, the thing that just enraged me was how um, something so horrible was no different than the like various cattle corpses we've come across in the field. We, we waited with the body for I think it was like six hours or so. It took a really long time for for the border patrol to come collect her. We, you know, we watched the vultures circling, and it was weird when when the border patrol did show up. One of the agents was he made a joke about, you know, I I hope my wife's not making chili tonight. That's a clip from the film Elmar Lamar. It's showing through Tuesday at the Film Center at the Art Institute. And J.P. Snydecki, the code filmmaker, is with us on the line. Uh, I imagine a film like this really stays with you for a while, a film that where you get into the desert and you, you experience it. Yeah, um, people are often telling us, you know, audience members who view it feel um, like they've been sort of um, left in the desert. There's been situations where we've been screening it and children of people who came across the border who didn't experience it but heard, you know, snippets of stories from their parents would say that, you know, they call their parents right after the film happened to say, you know, and I finally understood sort of what you went through to uh, come here to the United States. Um, and for me, myself as a filmmaker, it's the desert and that environment and the stories that unfold there, the tragedies including the tragedies, um, sort of compel me to continue working down there. So I am, <laughs> one of my next projects is still down um, in that region. But I've been w- w- pretty close with a, an important anthropologist and archaeologist who just won a MacArthur Genius Award, um, Jason De Leon, uh, who's at the University of Michigan. And he runs the Undocumented Migrant Project and um, does a number of writings, wrote a very polemical book about prevention through deterrence called The Land of Open Graves. He was a big inspiration for this film as well, and a consultant, and a, and a um, just a big sort of uh, source of important knowledge, but also contacts in those the regions that we wanted to go to. Well, I hope a lot of people get to see Elmar Lamar, and uh, it's through Tuesday at the Film Center of the Art Institute. J.P. Snydecki is the filmmaker. He made it with Joshua Bonetta. And thanks very much for joining us again, J.P. Snydecki. Uh, good luck with your project. Thanks for doing this. 
My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. And great to see you, Milo Stalik. I hope people see you and Earl Morris at the Humanities Festival on Tuesday. You're going to do an interview with him at the Music Box Theater. That should be fun. Which has very little to do with film. Thanks a <laughs> it lot. It has to do with his throwing an ashtray at his professor. Okay. <laughs> Milo Stalik, thanks a lot. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time with culture on the weekend. Nari Safavi is here. He is our tour guide. He's one of the founders of the Pasfarda Arts and Cultural Exchange. Great to see you, Nari. Good day, Jerome. It's great to be here. Well, we're going to a couple fun places today. Um, start with f- the first one. Absolutely, yeah. We're going first, uh, going to the Middle East, throughout the whole Middle East, but mostly in the Arab countries. In the, uh, the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society, which is an organization that kind of was formed to help with uh, what was going on in Iraq in the last decade or so, is uh, has been doing a lot of interesting work with Iraqi poets and poets from the Middle East in general in collaboration with the Poetry Foundation. And they're doing a Middle Eastern Poetry Festival uh, this weekend. You know, tomorrow from 2 to 3 p.m. It, it will be at the Poetry Foundation, which is an architecturally interesting site, and it will be great to go see a lot of Middle Eastern poets uh, there uh, doing recitations. And this is their sixth annual festival, yes. so they've got this down. They have this down. I, w- I went to a couple of ones uh, a couple of years before, and it was really very well done. It's the Middle East Poetry Festival with the Iraqi Mutual Aid Society at the Poetry Foundation tomorrow from 2 to 3. What else is out there? And then we're also going to go to India, to South Asia, Pravithachari and Anindo Bose, uh, Shadow and Light is the name of the show. Old Town School of Folk Music, uh, two musicians uh, from South Asian background who will be performing over there. It will be, it's a great world music venue. And these are very interesting interpreters of classical Indian music and ragas. Uh, It will be interesting to see them. That's tomorrow at 8 at the Old Town School of Folk Music. And our featured element today is at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Where are we going, Nari? Yeah, we are going to Europe and West Africa. And it was a show that I saw the preview of, and I was very impressed at the MCA. And the artist that has put the show together in collaboration with Omar Khalaif, the curator over there at the at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Odabong Nakanga is a Nigerian-born artist who is based in Antwerp. And this is basically a show about her work and her career. It's got the fascinating title of To Dig a Hole That Collapses Again. And we have on the line with us from Antwerp, Odabong and Kanga. Thanks a lot for joining us. Oh, hi. Hello. How are you? Great. (laughs) Um, Your exhibit looks so interesting. You have a thing for natural resources and making the connection that uh, people have about natural resources. Um, When did this start for you? I think I would talk more about the landscape and environment and how we are connected to it. Um, And of course, natural resources becomes a very important factor because most of what we use or what we consume is definitely linked to the resources we have. The early stages of my work really started with looking at landscape, working with photography, and also thinking through different kinds of spaces that 
produce raw materials and other places that consume them. Just from my own travels to West Africa and my own uh, having spent time there with an enterprise, I actually thought, I felt that animus sensibility that I feel when I, whenever I go to West Africa. And that sensibility was juxtaposed with a modern ethos of extraction and extractive industries. I sensed both of those things about Audubon's work, and that's what really moved me and impressed me about it. No, oh, thank you. Uh, um, I think in a way we're totally connected to materials that we use and um, in different ways, you know, it could be a spiritual way of having a stone around one's neck that, you know, and they believe, people believe that they are protected from whatever evils or it gives them strength to the same material becoming, entering into electronic products that we use. So that multiple facet of what a stone or mineral could mean enters into the work because it's the way of looking at it through multiple prisms and multiple lenses. Now, um, you've talked in the past about how you're attracted to glimmer and shine, and the natural resources, a lot of them glimmer and shine that we want. Uh, how, do you, how does that integrate in your... You've got tapestries, you've got every possible medium yep. that you work in. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you make that fly? Oh, how do I make that fly? Um, <laughs> I, 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 uh, if I have to think about it, it's, it's, um, it's just part of, you know, a psychological state of wanting to shine in a certain way, um, entering into the, the ways in which we're thinking of what we're wearing into um, consumer goods or thinking of newness every time, the new iPhone, the new iPod. And these are ways of thinking of that notion of shine or glimmer. Um, but at the same time, we have to also think of what remains in other places, what are the emptinesses that are found in other places, and those places might not have that possibility to shine because they've been emptied out. So with working with different mediums, there are different ways of working um, working around narratives, working around the material, working around um, performances that expand on those notions, thinking about the body as a surface to be able to put a material that allows it to shine literally. So, I mean, there are multiple ways to enter into that thinking of the shine and places that are obscured and not allowed to shine in a certain way. Looking at it from my perspective, I would say that uh, the glimmer and shine concept is very cleverly juxtaposed in two different layers. One is that I would say is uh, looking at it from a male perspective, there is a female sensibility about the glimmer and the shine of it and that seductive quality. Yet that seductive quality sometimes translates into the seduction of materialism and the longing for things that glimmer and shine. So there is, it's very cleverly strikes the balance between those two. We're talking with Odebong and Kanga about her exhibit, To Dig a Hole That Collapses Again. It's at the Museum of Contemporary Art. D- describe a piece that you like, Nari. Which, which one hit you? Oh, wow, gosh. Uh, there was a couple of them that are, um, that are really interesting. One of them is that big piece, that tapestry over there that is really very, very telling, that has these both geometric kinds of uh, figures within it that kind of connote a modernism <laughs> to it. These kinds of things turn into relationships between people. Then there is another one that's really got almost like diamond figures 
figures, flashing uh, kind of glimmering diamond figures on things that you're not really sure of. These are really decorative pieces that are supposed to be to connote some sort of a feminine seduction, or is it just that something that is just diamonds and it's more of comes comes from a Western sensibility of seductive consumerism? You're not really sure which one it is, and keeps you in that state of limbo as to where how to interpret it. And then there is also one part where uh, you know uh, there is actually Audubon has her own figure, her own nude figure with a uh, with a male nude figure, and they're in a very lovable embrace with one another. And then there is all kinds of other things going on in the background. <laughs> and uh, I think I just don't want to describe it too much. I don't want to over describe it. People should just go and see it for themselves and figure yeah. out what's going yeah. on over there. Okay, Otabong, is he getting it? <laughs> He is getting it. I mean, <laughs> when he talks about that um, kind of um, diamond kind of shape that is almost falling like, you know, little stars on the tapestry, um, it's actually a part of a molecular structure that has been reduced to its shape and its form. Um, but at the same time, it can remind us of the, you know, of diamonds or stars or, you know, things like that. But it's actually a, a structural molecular formula that has been reduced to one of the bits of that and that's it so it's it, i think that he gets it in many ways and i think the work allows you to fantasize the work allows you Absolutely. to think of different kinds of associations and my own research brings it to those multiple worlds and um but the nice thing is that people can really dream, fantasize, um, love it, hate it, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. and, then you, and then your consumerist kind of uh, longing can be actually be fed through buying, purchasing some soap over there too that, that relates to the exhibition too. So, Oh, really? Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> um, the, way, the way of thinking of that project is called Calf to Flow. Yeah. And so it's really looking at structures and in, in a way, how can you support a system that feeds its own self. So making the soaps allow for a foundation to be made in Nigeria, which allows for um, research, archiving, working with people in relation to material, thinking of new ways of in innovating ancestral knowledges of things. And so um, using that means of an exhibition to think through support systems, to think through um, foundation, economy, soil, oils, resources, um, was a way of, you know, putting the work of Calf to Flow together. So one can always buy a soap and that money goes into the foundation of uh, Calf to Flow. Yeah, it's all for a good cause. All right, yeah, that's that's <laughs> nice. I mean, so <laughs> is the idea that we shouldn't be buying some of the the shiny stuff that is out there? <laughs> but it sounds like that like there's a kind of a vague judgmentalism on that. You've got to come to that thing yourself. No, I mean, um, for me, the, the soap itself is uh, something that, for me, I took it from a place that is thinking around a holistic kind of structure in which, you know, you use the soap and then the, the soap enters the soil. It's made in a very, with natural products and um, natural oils and um, no additives, nothing to it. Um, and thinking of how can you make things that actually can go back to the earth and not pollute the earth, but at the same time, one certain kind of currency collapses into another. And that currency, which could be money, oils, can also collapse into the sharing of knowledge, of um, working with people, 
people. So it's just different economies collapsing. So one can always buy the glimmer, but, you know, what does it do? (laughs) (laughs) So you referenced collapsing uh, economies that collapse again, that the title of the exhibit, uh, To Dig a Hole That Collapses Again. This is what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think we are constantly digging holes that collapse again, and we are constantly trying to find new solutions, either politically, economically, and we can see that with the crisis that happened in 2008, then we build it up again, and maybe there'll be another collapse. And these are just holes and constant holes in which histories are built on. And so for me, it's really thinking through that as a way of thinking either with Kafka flow, or thinking of glimmer, or thinking of impulsive blink, or things like that. It's all around that subject. And that's a very appropriate uh, metaphor for what's going on in West Africa. Just having dealt with extractive industries in West Africa, the legacy of that open pit is one of the major problems that these countries are facing and the local communities are facing because once extractive companies have left the site and they leave those open pits, it leaves the communities with a lot of challenges and responsible companies are the ones who are actually coming and trying to fill up that hole again and try I turn that again into usable land, but a lot of companies don't want to incur that additional cost and they just leave it. So that legacy of that open pit is a one that a lot of these West African communities have to deal with. And Nari was mm. involved in the extraction industries with diamonds. But Trying you were, to create an ethical tr- diamond mining business uh, model. Is it out there still? It's still happening. Some companies have adopted it. My company is no, was absorbed by a larger company and, uh, and, all, and all of that. And I just kind of realized that the industry is not looking for a business model. <laughs> industry is looking for ways when, when, when they get hit by a crisis and the cash flow stops, that's when they start to become in, interested in innovation. But they're not interested in innovation as long as the old models are still working. And the old models yeah. of the diamond industry go back to the colonial era. So they haven't needed to update the business model since then. But now things are finally shifting. So they're, yeah. st- they're, they're, they're still getting a productive hole that they've dug, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well, the hole is uh, they have externalized the cost of rebuilding that hole, that environment to its original setting. So they go and they, bec- they it, it, it is productive. They extract, but then and then they leave the site as it is, destroyed. Yeah. So they're not paying for the cost. They've externalized that rebuilding cost. Oh, yeah. you, you've seen that kind of thing in Nigeria. Well, I, I visited Namibia because the project, um, for example, the title of the exhibition to um, to dig a hole that collapses again is a name of a place um, called Sumeb, and the local people were trying to dig a hole and it kept on collapsing. And so I visited this place called Sumeb in Namibia, where I saw the remains of this colonial past and the remains of the, mine, the first early mines um, that were was dug out by the Germans and so I visited that site to see the hole uh, and it's left as it is with also the slag right at the side of it so the debris the, the ruins of that are left behind so I've seen quite a different I'm seeing different kinds of mines in you know in different places and um, and it's just um, 
you really realize that legacy that is left behind and what it's done to the environment and to the people living there. And also you kind of think of it as a body that has not been repaired or hasn't been remediated or restituted in any way. And how does that affect the psychology, the energy, the emotion of that space and the people? Well, thank you for making the connection for us, and uh, I hope a lot of people get to the Museum of Contemporary Art and get to see your exhibit to dig a hole that collapses again, Otabong and Kanga. Thanks a lot for joining us from Antwerp. It's been a pleasure talking with you. No, it's been really a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to this, and uh, I hope everybody goes and enjoys the exhibition or at least can think through the exhibition to think about the world and what we're, where we're going to. Nari Safavi, thanks for another great edition of Weekend Passport. Thank you. It was a privilege to be here. Hope you have a great weekend, and when you come back on Monday on Worldview, we'll have the Puerto Rican mayor, Carmine Yulín Cruz. She has been outspoken with the uh, relief effort in Puerto Rico, and we'll chat with her about that Monday on Worldview. We're also going to talk about Bahama, the Bahamas, and Bahamas has moved to curtail tax avoidance schemes. This is going to inconvenience lots of people with offshore accounts in the Bahamas. We'll chat about that Monday on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Gali Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. Don't forget that you can podcast this program at any time. Go to WBEZ Worldview at uh, the website uh, WBEZ.org and uh, check out our podcast. Sign up for our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Listen to Worldview at any time. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.